You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 4. Um, so the reality is, is like, the first paper I remember writing when I was in Bible college was on this chapter. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. And... Uh, I spent a lot of time. It was my first research, real big research paper I had to write. It was 20-something pages that I had to write. And let me tell you, the more and more I study it, the more and more I love it. The more and more the heart of Jesus is revealed in this scripture. When I was younger, I remember uh, my mom having to tell me when we would go into places like Walmart or the grocery store or whatever, and she would say, you never want to judge a book by its cover. You never want to judge a book by a cover. And then I remember later on in life reading uh, MLK's statement that you should judge people not on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character, right? And I find it interesting that as human beings, we, we have to be taught this. This is something we have to be, have to be taught because our, re- our default position is to group people, to, to categorize people. I remember watching Levi when he was younger play with toys, and he liked to categorize his toys. The cars go over here, the yellow blocks go over here, the blue blocks go over here. We like to categorize because it's easier to categorize than it is to actually get to know. That's an eight in us. We like to group and separate things, and we like to group and separate people because it's easier for us to process. If we group people into a certain category, whether it be by their skin color or their religion or their the way they vote, or whatever it is, it's we categorize them. We can make a judgment on them as a member of a certain group. That's been true for most of human history, that these people are good and those people are bad, and we make a judgment based on what we think about a certain group of people and where they come from. And we make assumptions on them based on how they look, how they talk, what they wear. But when you assume something, anything, about a person, you don't see them as a person to be loved. You see them as a problem to be solved, an issue to be avoided, an enemy to be conquered. But that doesn't reflect how God sees them. That doesn't reflect how God sees them. God sees all people, even people different from us, as worthy to be loved. The people who vote differently from us, the people who live differently than us, the people who annoy and frustrate us are worthy of love. And we see that because God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We see this in the life of Jesus. He saw people for who they are, not for the group that they came from. And this is most apparent in the scripture today. Jesus didn't see ethnicity. He didn't see gender or religion as a barrier to ministry. Jesus saw a person who needed him. So as those who love and serve Jesus, we should see them the way that he does. Which means that we need to get over our preconceptions and our prejudices and love them with an astounding love. We need to love them like Jesus loved them. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity to open up your word. Lord, I pray that as... Um, I'm standing here preaching. I am an empty vessel ready to to uh, have you speak through me, if you would, Lord. I pray that as we enter into this time of reading your scripture, that you would illuminate them for us. Lord, that we could see the love of Jesus pouring off the pages of scripture. 
we can see the compassion of Jesus. Lord, you are amazing. You are awesome. You are worthy of all worship and glory and honor and praise, Lord. And as as people made in your image, Lord, help us to treat others with the love that you have shown us. Laying aside how we feel about them, Lord, and loving them as we love ourselves. Lord, loving you with all that we have and loving them as we love ourselves, imitating the love that you have for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 9. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The first thing we see here is that there was a divine appointment, that there was an appointment that Jesus had in Samaria. Jesus is making waves in the, in the region. His ministry is, is making splashes, and his disciples are continuing to gain. He and his disciples are gaining more followers. And now they're baptizing more people than John. And Jesus is now on the Pharisees' radar. Jesus doesn't want to deal with the Pharisees right now, so he's like, I'm just going to leave here, and I'm going to go to a different place. I'll deal with them later. I'll deal with the Pharisees later. So he leaves Judea, and he goes to Galilee. And what John tells us is that Jesus had to travel through Samaria, or my favorite version of this phrase comes from the King James Version that says he must needs go through Samaria. He must needs go through Samaria. For us, this may not sound that striking. It may not sound that important, but if the original readers are reading this scripture, they would see something amazing happening here. The quickest way to get from Judea to, uh, to Galilee was to travel through Samaria. That was the quickest, straightest route. The trip would take about three days if you went that direct route. But if you were a super devout Jew and a Jewish leader, you would travel around Samaria rather than going through Samaria. You would add an extra three days to your journey just to avoid going through Samaria. Why? Why would they do this? Why would they want to spend an extra three days walking around Samaria than going through it? Because the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. They hated them. Back in uh, 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire invaded Israel. Right? And some of the Assyrians settled in the land of Samaria. And what happens is when the Jews get to go back to their land, the Jewish people intermingled with the, with the Assyrians in that area. And so they married them. And that led to what's, what we call syncretism, meaning that they would take some elements from the Assyrian religion and some elements from the Jewish religion and mash them together. And they would start worshiping the same way that the Assyrians did. They started to worship false gods. It led to a rejection of most of the Hebrew Bible. The only part of the Hebrew Bible that they really adhered to or thought as authoritative were the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The rest of it, not important. They ended up building their own temple in Samaria, and they thought that it was important for them to worship in Samaria, even though God had promised them Jerusalem as the place where they would worship. 
So the Jewish people saw the Samaritans as worse than second-class citizens. They saw them as half-breeds. They saw them as unclean. They saw them as an affront to God's calling of the Israelites. The Jewish people saw the Samaritans as a disgrace and would avoid them at any chance, any opportunity they came. And that's why it's so striking that Jesus over and over again in his stories uses Samaritans as the um, pinnacle of truth or as obedience to God because they were so disgraced by the Jewish people. So the fact that Jesus had to go through Samaria means that in his ministry, he is laying aside all preconceptions. He's laying aside all prejudices and demonstrating that there is no one unworthy of hearing the good news. Jesus arrives at this well. It tells us that it was about noontime that he gets to this well in Sychar. And John tells us that he was worn out from his journey. I love John. He wants us to remember the humanity of Jesus. They want to, he wants us to remember that Jesus was a human. Yes, he's the creator of the world. Yes, he is God made flesh. Yes, he is divine, but he is also human. Fully God and fully man. Jesus gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He gets worn out. He's been traveling and he is exhausted. And as he's sitting at this well, a woman approaches the well. In the middle of the day. Do you know when most people would come to the well? It wasn't in the middle of the day. It's hot. It's uncomfortable. It's harder work than it has to be in the middle of the day. They would either come in the morning or they would come in the evening. And the well wasn't just a place where you would go. Like It was a hangout spot. That's where we get this phrase, the water cooler talk. Not really, but that's where it's the, it was like the coffee shop in these towns where people would gather together and have social interactions with one another. So the wells became places of meeting. And so if someone was coming to the well when nobody else was at the well, that means that they were trying to avoid social interactions with other people. They were trying to avoid being around other people. They were either an outcast or they were shunned by the people in the world, in that town. They were trying to avoid the cross glances and the murmurs from the rest of the women in town. They didn't want to deal with the looks from the mobs of people, the looks of condescension, the looks of anger and disappointment. They believed that it was easier to come to the well in the middle of the day than it was to deal with those people at the well. But you see, God had a divine appointment set up. God had a reason for that woman coming to that well at noon. And it was to meet Jesus. The meeting at the well wasn't an accident either. Wells play a big role in the life of people dwelling in a desert region. They don't have indoor plumbing. They didn't have running water. They couldn't go to the faucet and turn on water. They had to go to the well to get water. And this wasn't just any well. This was a well that was set up by Jacob and given to his son Joseph. It ties the historicity of Genesis with the promises of the Messiah to come. And not only are the wells meeting places like coffee shops and stuff, they, they, they are also a place where marriage proposals took place. The wells were big deals for desert dwellers. One of the most prominent stories of a well takes place in Genesis chapter 24, when Abraham sends one of his servants to a well to find a wife for his son Isaac. He sends him back to his homeland to find a wife for his son Isaac. And that's where he meets Rebekah. The servant meets Rebekah at the well. It's a great story. It's in Genesis chapter 24. If you want to read it, it's, it's beautiful. Go back and read it. So we get a picture here that Jesus is about to propose to this woman at the well. Not in an earthly marriage sort, but in a heavenly one. 
Think about where we just ended with John talking about the groom is here. The groom has come to take his bride back in chapter 3. This account comes right on the heels of that. John says in 3.29, He who has a bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. Remember, God's people are Christ's bride. And here Jesus is inviting this woman. He's inviting this woman to find all that she is looking for in him, to be wed to him. And Jesus begins this conversation by asking her for a drink of water because he's tired, he's exhausted, and he's thirsty. And she's a little bit taken aback by his request. She knows all the social barriers that Jesus is hurtling over and bursting through to just simply talk to her. For older Jewish men, especially rabbis and traveling people, they wouldn't talk to women in public. Not even their own wives they wouldn't talk to in public. So the fact that Jesus is here at a well with some unclean Samaritan woman and having a conversation with her, he's just blowing everything out of the water. They certainly wouldn't talk about spiritual truths. They wouldn't talk about anything with their women. And Jesus is about to have one of the most in-depth spiritual conversations with this woman that doesn't belong to the people of God. Or so that's thought. And no Jewish person would share a drinking vessel with a Samaritan either. Why? Because again, they, were, they view the Samaritan people as unclean, and if they share a drinking vessel with an unclean person, then they become unclean. And if they become unclean, that means they, they can't go to the temple to worship. That means that they can't participate in the things of their religion. If they shared anything, they would become unclean if they shared it with an unclean person. One Jewish historian said that sharing a drinking vessel with a Samaritan was akin to sharing a drinking vessel with a pig. That's how they were viewed. And we know how the Jewish people feel about pigs. They don't like them. They think they're unclean. They won't even eat bacon, guys. Right? (laughs) But Jesus isn't afraid of what is unclean. Jesus isn't afraid because he takes what's unclean and he cleanses it. He's not infected by something being unclean. He takes what is defiled and unclean and he purifies it. That's what he's offering to this unclean sinner to be purified by his touch, to be cleansed by his embrace. This woman also has what we would call, and we'll learn about it a little bit more later, a history when it comes to men. She has a history. Most likely the only time that men would talk to this woman is when they wanted something from her when they wanted to participate in some unsavory activities, they would come to this woman. But Jesus blows away all of our expectations, all of our preconceptions. He blows them away. He treats this woman like a human being, worthy of dignity, worthy of love, worthy of respect, because she's made in the image of God. This may be one of the first times in this woman's life where she is looked at as anything other than just a piece of property. Can you imagine for just one second someone finally sees you for who you are rather than what you can give them? Not what they can get from you, not what you can do for them, but what they want to give to you. It's absolutely awe-inspiring that Jesus sees us not as our sin. He sees us not as our failure, Not as our rebellion, but one worthy of his love. One worthy of his grace. One worthy of his forgiveness. I want you to just take a second and breathe that in. 
Jesus actually sees you. And he still wants a relationship with you in your brokenness and in your failure because he loves you. He loves you all your warts and all. But unfortunately, this this woman, she doesn't understand the importance of this meeting. So Jesus is going to tell her. In verse 10, he says this, Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, You don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never thirst again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, Give me this water so that I, will not, I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Jesus, once again, is directing the conversation. He wants her to see the reality of who he is, and he wants her to see the importance of living water. The source of all this fresh water, all this water that's at the well is a running stream. And so she's thinking the living water is what's in the well, but she's not noticing that the living water is who is talking to her. And Jesus says that if this woman only knew who she was talking to, she would have living water. And she's confused. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and you just felt like you were talking past them? Like they just were not picking up what you were putting down? It happens a lot, doesn't it? And that's what's happening right here. That no matter what Jesus says, she's not actually hearing what she's saying because she is so focused on the water. She is so focused on the thing that she wants that she doesn't see the thing that she needs. Imagine that that's what's happening right here. And just like with Nicodemus, Jesus is speaking about spiritual things, and all they're thinking about is the physical problems, their physical needs. If she had water that would never cause her to thirst again, she's like, give it to me. I want it all right now, so I don't have to come back to this spot. So I don't have to come back to my shame. So I don't have to come back to the things that separate me from the rest of the people. I want that. I want to avoid them. I won't have to travel outside the city. And that sounds like a good deal. Let's do that. You mean that you, Jesus, can make my life easier? Then that's what I want. I want my life to be easier. Sign me up. That's not what he's saying, though. Jesus is getting to the heart of what she really needs. She doesn't need water that will cure her physical thirst. She needs water that will quench her thirst for the things of this world. Here's what we have to know. Jesus is interested in quenching our thirst for the things of this world. And we all have things of this world that we chase after. Things that we believe will satisfy us. We're thirsty people. Whether it be a promotion at work, a bigger paycheck, more friends, more followers, our parents' approval, a new relationship, our spouse's approval, society's approval, an easier life, a bigger car, a bigger house, a bigger boat, Whatever it is, we're chasing after those things. But everything that we chase after is simply a mirage in the desert. We run to that well of worldly satisfaction and temporarily walk away satisfied only to have to return once again. Because what temporarily satisfies us will not continue to satisfy us. 
We believe that if we achieve this goal, attain that prize, that we will be content, that we will be satisfied, only to discover that once that line is crossed, all we want is more. I've met that goal, now I want more. I want bigger, I want better. We are never satisfied. We were chasing after the things of this world. Rather than those mirages, we need to run to the well of living water. We need to run to the creator of all things who can truly satisfy our soul. We need to turn to the one who knows our deepest need and he alone can satisfy it. Jesus is the true oasis in the desert of desire. He is the only one who can truly satisfy. The woman at the well then questions whether Jesus is better than Jacob. Are you better than our father Jacob who gave us this well? She can't believe that he would be any better than the one who dug the well. She can't believe that Jacob is any better than Jacob. She can't believe that the one asking her for a drink is the one that satisfies. And we're like that often too. We, we question whether Jesus is actually as good as he claims to be. Just like this woman does here. And before we get too high on our high horse, isn't that the same game that we play with Jesus? Jesus, are you actually better than money? Jesus, are you actually better than relationships? Jesus, are you actually better than the approval of others? Jesus, are you actually better than the things of this world? And he tells us, yes, I am. And we are in a privileged position that on this side of the cross, we can look back on what Jesus did, the life that he gives through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and we can see that he is as good as he says he is. And yet, it's still not enough to satisfy us. Jesus tells, uh, tells her, and he's telling us that if we drink from the well of living water, if we give our lives to him, then we will be renewed. We will be refreshed. We will be satisfied. We don't have to continue searching. Satisfaction isn't found in people. It's not found in places, and it's not found in things. It is found in Jesus alone. That doesn't mean that drinking from the well of li living water is going to be easy. Or drinking from the well of living water is going to be painless because in order to have satisfaction in Jesus, we have to understand and be confronted with our own shortcomings, with our own sinfulness. We have to understand our own sin. We have to know that it is the sin that we are chasing after will not satisfy. We have to be divorced from that. That's what Jesus is doing with this woman. He shows her where she falls short. He shows her what she needs to stop chasing after and how she needs to cling to Jesus. Verse 16, Go, call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have said correctly, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you have had five husbands, and the man you are now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The truth is when we're confronted with the living water, where he confronts our heart. Jesus is directing this encounter again. He asked the woman to go get her husband. Jesus knew the situation. He knew what was going on. He wouldn't have said this if he didn't know. He had a supernatural understanding as to the conversation that he was having with this person. But notice that with that insight, he wasn't condescending. He didn't mock her. He didn't shame her. He didn't make her feel like less of a person. Rather, he affirms what she has said and gives her space to reflect on her life. 
you are right in what you have said. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And the man that you're with now is not your husband. He gives her time to think about the fact that she hasn't lived according to God's standards. When it comes to a true encounter with Jesus, it's important that Jesus reveals to us our own sinfulness, our own place where we fall short. And this will make us uncomfortable. It'll make us uneasy. But in order to understand the goodness of God, we have to know the reality of our brokenness. And I want you to know that when God reveals to us our sinfulness, our wickedness and our brokenness, it isn't to shame us. It isn't to condemn us. It isn't to embarrass us. It's to show us that how much we need Him. It's to reveal to us our need for Him. He reveals to us our true heart so that we can see our real need for salvation. Because if we don't see our true brokenness, then we don't know our true need for His salvation. Like I've said before, we often think of ourselves as better than we actually are. We try to justify our sin. We try to deflect our sinful state. We try to use other people as the standard by which we judge ourselves. At least I don't sin like them. They're really bad sinners. I'm not that bad. But until we see ourselves the way that God sees us, when we are separated from Him, we will not recognize our desperate need for salvation. And one of the ways that we hide behind our sin is by simply not owning up to it. That's what this woman does, right? He says, go get your woman, or go get your husband. And he, she says, I don't have a husband. She's not wrong. She's not lying to Jesus. But she's saying to Jesus, you don't really know my situation. You don't really know me. You don't really know where I've been or where I'm going. I don't even have a husband. She hides behind a technicality. But Jesus sees right through it, doesn't he? Jesus sees right through our own technicalities, our own justifications. He sees through our own rebellion. And here's the thing, even when he's seen through those things, he still wants us. He still wants us. The sin and the shame that you hide behind, thinking that Jesus couldn't want you because of what you've done, is exactly the reason why he's chasing after you right now. It's not your sin and your shame that is keeping you separated from God. It's the fact that you don't believe he's good enough, that he's gracious enough, or that he's loving enough to actually forgive you for what you've done. And you think that hiding behind your sin is protecting you. You think that hiding behind your sin is protecting him from seeing the real you. But you can't hide from God. God, is waiting. God isn't waiting on some future version of you. He wants you right here, and he wants you right now. All the stains, all the flaws, all the warts. He wants you right now. This meeting at the well with this woman is Jesus is proposing to her and offering her a life of her dreams. Right, The marriage that she hasn't found yet. She's been through five husbands. Now she's with a man that isn't her husband. She's given up on finding love, acceptance, and grace. She's okay with her life. But Jesus wants you to know that if you want to experience love greater than those found in men, she, he says, come to me. You can continue to run after and chase after these men and that only want you for what you can do for them, or you can come to me and I will cleanse you and satisfy your soul. And you can insert men for whatever you're chasing after. That it's not 
people, things, or places that will satisfy your soul, only Jesus will. So what is it that you are chasing after? What is it that you long for? What are you hoping will satisfy your soul? Because if it isn't Jesus, it will never be enough. You need to be open to the salvation that Jesus is offering to you. Open to the forgiveness and the grace that he is extending to you. It's not an evil or a vile thing when Jesus reveals to you your own soul, your own sin. It's a loving call to come and come to the well of living water. And that's what Jesus is doing right here. Revealing to her her own sin, where she falls short. And unfortunately, again, she still doesn't get it. She doesn't understand. And she says in verse 19, she, she changes the subject. She says, sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Oh, you've revealed to me everything that you ever saw that you know about me. So I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. True worship. You see, this whole thing, all the sin in our lives, all boils down to what we worship, who we worship. And I don't know if she's trying to change the subject about husbands or what exactly this lady is doing, but she has some questions about worship. And so she now has a question about what worship means. Why? Because she now knows that Jesus has some insight. She sees him as a prophet. That he's seen something in her that nobody else would ever be able to see. She thinks that she can settle a debate between worship, about worship, between the Samaritans and the Jews. Hey, you've got some insight. Tell me. Let's, Let's stop talking about my husbands for a second. Let's talk about this. She's changing the subject. But remember, the Samaritans... Uh, did hold on to some of the Jewish traditions. However, they only held on to the first five books of the Bible, right? The Pentateuch. They only saw that as authoritative. So they are waiting for what was promised in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the the prophet that is to come that's greater than Moses. So she maybe thinks that Jesus is this prophet. He's going to reveal something to us. So she wants to see if her and her fellow Samaritans are right about how they worship. Or if it's the Jews who are right about this worship. But she misses the point about worship. She misses the whole point about worship, and Jesus is going to help her understand that it's not just her, but many who miss the point about what worship is. Jesus begins with the hour is coming, and that refers to his death and his burial and his resurrection. And what Jesus tells her next is that when the hour has arrived, it's not about the place someone worships, it's about worshiping in spirit and in truth. Now, the Samaritans are on the short end of the stick because they do not recognize the fullness of the scriptures given to the Jewish people. So they don't actually know the full revelation of God. They do not know the fullness of the God that they say that they worship because they have melded with other religions and they lost sight of who God truly is. Now, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament, of all the promises of the Jewish people. And salvation was first promised to the Jewish people 
So they worship God that has been revealed to him. Unfortunately, when Jesus comes, many of them miss the mark on the Messiah. That's why Jesus tells her here that the time is coming when worship isn't about a place. It's not about a temple. It's about a person. Worship worship isn't a where. Worship is a who. Who are you worshiping? For someone to rightly worship God, they have to worship in both spirit and in truth. And God wants people to worship him. See, Jesus is breaking barriers here with the Samaritan woman saying that, that you can come and you can worship God if you worship in spirit and in truth, even though you do not belong to the Jewish people. And that makes its grander and wider expanse in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, that all people can come and worship God if they worship in spirit and in truth. And here's another thing. It says, and God wants people to worship him. That word wants is better translates into seeks or desires people to worship him. Meaning that if you are seeking after truth, if you desire the truth, then God desires your worship. He is seeking your worship because he is the truth. God is a personal God and he acts in history both on a macro scale, a big scale, and on a micro scale. Right? He directed all of history to point to where Jesus came to be born of a virgin. From the call of Abraham to the virgin birth, he directed history. From the virgin birth to Christ's crucifixion, he directed history. From the resurrection until the day he comes back, God is directing history. On a grand scale, we don't always see what's happening, but we know that God is working. And many Christians, unfortunately, want to avoid the Old Testament. They want to ignore the Old Testament. They think that it doesn't apply to them, or they find it confusing. They find it a little frustrating, and I understand there's a lot of genealogies and words and stuff that we don't understand in the Old Testament, right? We're, we're so removed from it. But if we don't understand the Old Testament, we can't really understand the, extra, the, the history of redemption. We can't understand what Jesus actually set, done. I heard one professor say it this way. Starting the story in Matthew is like starting with Act 5 in a five-act play. You may understand how the story ends, but you miss how it got there. And because you have missed how it got there, you can't fully appreciate it for what it is. We can't just skip over the Old Testament. There's, in fact, one pastor who's very prominent. He's got a big church. He's very influential. He's very popular. And he says that Christians should unhitch from the Old Testament. We should just ignore it. It's not important. That's the history, though. That's the history of God's working in the world. But we shouldn't unhitch from what God has done in history. That's the way we know he's faithful to complete what he's already started. Right? If he's done it in history, then we can lean on those promises that he's going to continue to do it. But not only does God work on the macro scale, he also works on the micro scale. The God we worship isn't far off. He draws near to the brokenhearted. He draws near to those who are broken in spirit. He is spirit, meaning that he isn't limited by time and he's not limited by space. We don't have to visit a building or go to a certain place to worship God. Those are good things, but when we truly worship God, we're worshiping him in spirit and in truth. We're worshiping him in a way that honors him. We worship him with our lives, not just on a Sunday morning. Now, what I don't want you to hear me say, all right, listen, I don't want you to hear me say that you shouldn't come to church. Okay? You should be here. We should worship with God's people. In fact, as a follower of Jesus, you should want to worship with other believers. But your worship isn't limited to what we do here on Sunday mornings. Rather, worship is a lifestyle, not a time frame not a one-hour block on Sunday mornings. 
We see here again in John's Gospel that God sets the parameters by which he is worshipped. He has to be worshipped in both spirit and in truth. Those are the guidelines for proper worship of God. And the woman, upon hearing what Jesus says, when he's talking about true worship, she asks for clarification from the Messiah. The woman said to him in verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. She was waiting for an explanation from the anointed one, from the Messiah, from the Christ. Meaning that the story of salvation is found all the way back in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, because that's all they that, that's all that she adhered to. And how does Jesus respond to her? Oh man, this is fantastic. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. I am. I am the one that you are looking for. I am the one that you are waiting for. I am the one who is explaining these things to you. You don't have to look any further because I'm right here. This is revolutionary. This is the first time from Jesus' lips that he reveals to anyone that he is the Messiah. This is the first time that he speaks it. John talks about him. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Jesus is the first time he talks about it. He didn't tell Nicodemus. He didn't t- hasn't told his disciples. He chooses to reveal himself to a lady who by the world's standards doesn't deserve the time of day. Jesus is crossing boundaries and breaking barriers. And what is, so rev- what, what is this woman's response to this revelation? Verse 27. Just then the disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Verse 28. Then the woman left her water jar, went to the town, and told the people, Come, see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. The response. The response is is interrupted by the disciples showing up. And they are immediately start to think to themselves, but they're not really bold enough to say it, that why is Jesus talking with this woman? Who is this? Why is she here? He shouldn't be talking with her. And here's a real quick principle that from these disciples that we need to learn and grasp a hold of. Jesus saves those who he will save. Whether they look like us, they talk like us, they act like us, regardless of if we think they are worthy of salvation, they will be saved if Jesus wills it. And we should rejoice when Jesus reveals himself to anyone. Those far from God, when he reveals himself to them, that is an amazing thing. We do not need to say that he can only save those who look like, think like, and act like us. He can save who he wants. We may not say it out loud, but sometimes we're thinking, the same thing that these guys were thinking, God, why would you call that person? Just this week I was having a conversation with um, a group of guys I have lunch with on Wednesdays. And there's this new guy who, who's who been coming on Wednesdays, and he's his name, well, I won't tell you his name, but he's he's uh, he's one of those guys that you look at and you go, man, he looks like he's had a rough life. He's got tattoos all over his neck, and he's got he, he looks rough, but he is in love with Jesus. But there are some who would look at him and say, why does God love that guy? You know why God loves that guy? Because he does. Why does that guy love God? Because he's been saved. It doesn't matter what he looks like externally. God called him to himself and he loves him. And that's what's amazing. Anyway, how does this woman respond to Jesus? She leaves her water jar. The whole reason she had come to the well, she ran away. Because she had found the source of living water. 
She wasn't 100% convinced yet that he was the Messiah, but he, she was on the verge, right? She says, "Come, could this man be the Messiah? Well, it doesn't matter if I, I'm fully convinced. I think that this guy is. Jesus revealed to her her sin. Jesus spoke to her with kindness and in love. Jesus reveals who he is, and the woman responds by running into town and testifying about Jesus, leaving behind the burden of the water jar to go testify about Jesus. The people that she was trying to hide from when she came to the well in the middle of the day were the same people she was going to go tell about this man. She was bold. She was no longer ashamed. She wanted others to come and to meet Jesus. And I find it interesting that John, the author of this gospel, decided to put two stories of two completely different people right next to each other. The story of Nicodemus, the religious leader, and the name of this, or the, the story of this nameless, sinful woman are right next to each other. They stand in stark contrast to one, one another, but they reveal a deep truth. And here's the deep truth. There is not one person alive who does not need Jesus. Whether they are the super religious or the super sinful, they all need Jesus. We need Jesus. And he uses us, he calls us as his people to tell other people about himself. Evangelism is simple. She just said, come and see this man who told me everything that I have done. Telling people about what Jesus has done for you is simple. I didn't say it was easy. Sometimes it's hard. But we should be excited like this woman to tell people about Jesus because he has revealed to us who he is. We should be bold in simply telling people about him. Come and see the one who told me everything, who showed me my brokenness, who showed me my need for salvation. That I have been transferred from an enemy of God to a child of God. That I've been brought out of the darkness and into the light, that I was dead in my sins and trespasses, and now I am alive. And it's all because of the grace of God. And if we can see what we have been saved from, then we, can, we can't help but glorify God. It's like that, that verse, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It's amazing. That's what God has done for us. He has saved us from our sinfulness. He has sa saved us from our wretchedness. And what is our response? Our response is to tell people about him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the life that you have given us, for the calling you have set before us, Lord. Lord, as we go into this time of singing a couple of songs to reflect on your goodness, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be stirred. Lord, that if there's sin in our lives or in our hearts, Lord, that you would convict us of it, that you would show us the fullness of who we, we are, Lord, and that even in our sinful state, Lord, you would still love us. You would still reach out to us. Lord, I know that some of us are real thirsty, and we need a drink from the living water. Lord, be that for us today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and stand up, please. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.